Welcome to Hope Awakens, presented by It Is Written, coming to you from beautiful Eastern Tennessee. I'm John Bradshaw, and I want to thank you for being part of this mountaintop experience. We're looking for answers in a time when the landscape is shifting and changing. As you join Hope Awakens, you're joining people from around the globe. Greetings to our friends in Carmel, Indiana. So good to have you with us. Roy is in Linden, Pennsylvania. Rhonda is in Pawpaw, Illinois, south of Rockford. Mark is in Shadron, Nebraska. Now that's just south of the border with South Dakota. Rick is in Udua, Tennessee. That's just over there. Janice is in Van Wert, Ohio, home of the Van Wert Peony Festival. I want to say hi to Battle Creek, Michigan, Douglas, Arizona, and Cape Coral, Florida. Fantastic to have you. We're making sense of the moment. Thanks for being part of Hope Awakens. It is really good to have you with us at Hope Awakens. If you've not done so already, I hope you will tell someone else to join us and not to miss what we are experiencing here. We are just getting warmed up and I hope you have brought your thinking cap because tonight we're going to do some thinking. There's a lot to learn and be blessed by still to come. Now we start each night with your questions, so we're going to jump right into them. Thanks for sending them in. Just a reminder, you can submit your questions at hopeawakens.org, hopeawakens.org. You go there, you can submit questions, you can find resources, you can view previous presentations, and you can send prayer requests as well as questions. Now to ask your questions, here's a good friend of mine, Doug Na'ar. Doug, thanks for joining me. Hey, John, it's good to be here. We have again a lot of good questions tonight, so let's uh, get right into it. If you're explaining to a six-year-old child about creation, and yet he always goes back and says, but who created God? How would you answer that question? Oh, there's only one way to answer that question, and that's to say, no one created God. God has always been here. Now, any thinking six-year-old is gonna say, how's that possible? And you answer by saying, well, if someone created God, that person would be God. Where did that person come from? It is okay to explain to six-year-olds or to anybody at all that there are some things about God that we cannot explain, but we can accept by faith. We see evidences of God everywhere in creation and all through creation. So don't feel bad about saying God was always here because His ways are very high above our ways. There are some things about God that we cannot explain. If we could explain everything about God, He would cease to be God. Why can't we just have people go out there and heal all those who have been infected by COVID-19? Well, that's a good question. Why, for that matter, can we not have people go out there and uh, heal AIDS patients and tuberculosis sufferers and feed all the hungry people? Now, does God still work miracles of healing today? Yes, He certainly does. No question about it. Have I witnessed that? Yes, I have. So why then does God not heal everybody? Well, it's a fair question, but we'll let God answer that question. Perhaps at a time like this, God wants us to get through this thing by faith and leaning on Him. Now, before we say, why doesn't God heal? Let's remember the vast majority of COVID-19 patients have recovered. And I will put that down to the grace and goodness and mercy of God. And I'm guaranteeing it. Well, I can't do that, can I? I say with confidence, 
It seems like there would be no doubt in my mind that God has intervened specially in many cases to bring a healing that would be seen to be miraculous. Let's not sell God short. God heals when he doesn't. That's no need to wonder what's wrong with God. Can God's law be seen as a definition on how to love? First of all, how to love God, and then secondly, how to love man? Oh, absolutely, great question. You see, the first four of the 10 commandments deal with our relationship to God. The next six, the last six, our relationship to our fellow human beings. Paul wrote to the Romans and he said that love is the fulfilling of the law. So your question, statement, question, statement, absolutely right, I would agree with you wholeheartedly. Since we are saved by grace, why does the Bible say in Revelation 22 verse 14, blessed are those who do the commandments of God for they shall inherit eternal life. We are saved by grace through faith unto good works. It says that in the book of Ephesians chapter two. The fact that we have been saved by grace does not mean that we should disobey God. You see, when you've been saved by grace, this engenders in you a love response to God and you will want to do His will. And the more you are connected with God, the more you will grow into doing God's will more fully. So don't confuse the two. Saved people love to do God's will. It's like a wife or a husband who loves to do that which pleases her or his spouse out of love. How can I know without a shadow of a doubt that I will be ready for the soon coming of Jesus? Well, here's how. Are you ready now? And if you cannot answer that in the affirmative, then you and God need to have a little talk. We are saved through Jesus. We claim Him as Lord and Savior. Did you do that? I'm gonna suggest that your answer is yes. Did you change your mind? Question indicates you probably didn't. Third question I have for you. So what in the world are you worried about? You grab hold of Jesus, that's salvation. Choose not to let go and that gift of salvation doesn't slip out of your hands. You can know that you'll be ready then because you know that you are ready now. And by the way, don't worry about tomorrow. Just deal with what you can deal with, and that is the present moment. Take hold of Jesus now. You have salvation now. No ifs, ands, or buts. Grow in Jesus. Just keep on doing that. Let tomorrow come when tomorrow comes. And if you're fine now, I expect you'll be okay then. Should I demand my wife, my 11-year-old, and my 16-year-old to join me in Bible study and prayer? Or should I respect their privacy? You should not demand and you should respect their privacy. You might want to invite and you don't want to be hectoring or haranguing or hassling. Uh, just invite and, uh, and pray and ask that God would work in their hearts. Share where you can, but no, don't demand. That won't have good results at all. You mentioned uh, two laws, the moral and the ceremonial law. Which one is Moses' law? Ah, good question. Now, the moral law, we call that the Ten Commandments. The ceremonial law, you don't read that in the Bible, the ceremonial law. That's just a, a moniker we've put on it, and I think it's okay. It, it indicates this is the, the law of Moses, if you like. The ceremonies, the types, the sacrifices, the shadows. So the ceremonies, types, sacrifices, shadows, that's the Mosaic ceremonial law. What God wrote on stone, the Ten Words, that's the moral law the Ten Commandments. This one comes from Alvin in uh, Nairobi, Kenya. He says, I've been blessed with a loving family, a well-off family. I've been living a smooth life in comparison to others who's gone through suffering. My question is, do I have to go through suffering that I might get into heaven? 
Oh, no, uh, n- no. There are numerous people who've lived a pretty charmed existence and uh, exited this mortal coil in the hope of salvation. Uh, that's okay. Uh, Alvin, um, d- tomorrow's got to come yet. So uh, don't feel like you're in some way short-circuiting the process. There's a little bit of life left for most of us. Suffering is not a prerequisite. You don't have to go through terrible loss in order to be saved. No, you don't. But whatever you're going through, keep looking in the direction of God and trust God. Trust God no matter what. He can be trusted. Is there a difference between studying the Bible and reading the Bible? Oh, yes. Paul wrote to the young man, Timothy, and he said, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman who needs not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Now, I could pick up my Bible and start in Genesis and read the creation account, or I could read the Gospel of John and just read. That's good. There's a blessing in that. But you want to dig a little deeper. You want to compare one passage with another passage. You want to squeeze some of these textures and see what, see what you can extract from them, you know? So, so do read, but do take time to meditate and, and dig and study. They're, they're two separate things, but clearly very well related. Now, John, I understand that God wants us to submit to authority. He sets up kingdoms and He takes down kingdoms. Now, the question is, how can I submit to governmental leadership if I don't agree with what they do and believe in? Yeah, good question. You know, in the book of Acts, the apostle said, we ought to obey God rather than men. Now, if a government leader tries to cause you somehow to violate the principles of heaven, that's when you'd say, I got to put God first, but I'm not talking about anarchy. The Bible says, honor the king. You don't have to agree with politicians in order to be a good citizen and honor the king. Uh, We submit because there are laws. You may not like the speed limit, but you're going to follow it anyway, because if you don't, you're going to end up getting a ticket. Don't ever expect to be happy with the laws. There are few that the vast majority of people could not happily obey. So I would encourage you, be a good citizen, be a good advertisement for Christianity. If a law ever comes on that comes along that directly cuts across your faith in God and somehow uh, compels you to violate heaven's principles, you have a talk with God about that and deal with that then. But for now, you don't have to like politicians to get along in society. This is a good question. Why is knowing the character of God critical to representing Him? Well, it really is. If you think God's a tyrant, you're going to portray God as a tyrant and you'll be fearful of God. If you know what God is really like, you can live in right relation to God and you can portray that to others so others see a clear, accurate picture of God. Now, in Daniel chapter 2, it talks about King Nebuchadnezzar's dream, the different types of medals. And when it comes down to the feet, you know, some theologians say that the feet represents Antichrist, whom Jesus will destroy at his soon coming. What are your thoughts on that? Well, my thoughts are that some theologians deny the virgin birth, deny Jesus walked on water, and don't even believe the creation account. So be careful uh, with the faith that you place in theologians. Now, I'm not against theologians. Thank God for them. Uh, we, we, we love great theologians. Uh, but what you do is you don't compare theologian with theologian. You compare Scripture with Scripture. And as you read uh, Daniel chapter 2, you see the head of gold, Babylon, then Medo-Persia, then Greece, then Rome, then Rome dividing into 10 nations. 
That's what is represented by the feet and toes in Daniel 2. Here's our last question for tonight, John. My husband doesn't believe in God or doesn't believe in the end times. I try to encourage him to read the Bible for proof of God-given signs through prophecy. Besides praying, what else can I do? Your husband would appreciate it if I said the best thing you could do is make lots of cookies. He would like me to say that. I don't know that that would be true though, or even helpful, but he would like for me to tell you that that's what you need to do. Um, just pray. Pray and model Christianity. Don't feel like it is your responsibility that your husband's heart has changed. That's his responsibility and God will work in his heart. You model Christianity, uh, pray and then leave it with God, knowing that he's a big boy who will ultimately make his own decisions, but do pray and do all you can to model faith in Jesus Christ. Mm. Thank you very much for your questions. I appreciate them. What I want to tell you is this. If you have questions, here's what to do. Go to hopeawakens.org, hopeawakens.org. And when you get there, you're going to find a tab that says submit a question. You'll find one that talks about prayer requests. You can watch previous Hope Awakens presentations, and that's where you'll find resources. We've got a subject tonight where we are going well beneath the surface. And so you're going to want to make sure you get your resources after tonight's presentation. And by the way, if one of my Hope Assistant, Hope Assistant, Hope Awakens assistants, if one of our Hope Awakens team contacts you by email and says, here's a resource, or if they contact you and say, we want to remind you about an upcoming presentation, I hope you'll welcome that, and I hope you'll appreciate that I've got a team of people who are trying to keep in touch with you. If I was in an auditorium, I could tell you that face-to-face -face as you walked out the door each night, but we're doing it this way virtually, so I've got a team of people who are helping me to communicate with you. I hope you will welcome them. My guest tonight is Vicki Griffin. She's the director of Lifestyle Matters, where she produces health education, wellness, and nutrition materials. Vicki, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me, John. I really appreciate it. Now, you're going to add, I think, a perspective tonight born out of your, your study, your relationship with God, and something of your experience. Go ahead. Well, I'm uh, a director of a nutrition and wellness program. Our materials are at lifestylematters.com. We have 26 different wellness topics that deal with mental, physical, and spiritual health. And you would think uh, that my background would reflect um, just being put in that groove, but it, but in fact, the opposite is the case. So I'm so grateful tonight to be able to share with you that God can make miracles out of messes. Now, you are fond of saying that we are, or not, I shouldn't say fond of saying, but I, we've discussed this, that uh, we're not on a playground, but we are in a battleground as human beings. A lot of people can relate to that. That is absolutely true, and not every storm is in the forecast. And so uh, we do a lot of addiction programs. I, I actually was a runaway. I, I started running away from home when I was 11, came from a very violent background, uh, had no resources, no tools for facing down life and the kinds of challenges that people 
are facing right now, I'm sure many, many people feel just that level of, of desperation. And so by that age, I was smoking, using drugs, running away. And now I'm in a health ministries uh, position. What committee in heaven figured this out? So I'm so grateful for the topic that you're sharing tonight. But yes, that battleground is real. And the addicted brain is fighting hard, but we need to learn how to fight smart. So there are five areas of battle. It's your environment. That's what surrounds you. I mean, you can get an angioplasty and get burger and, and fries on the way out of the hospital. So your environment is what surrounds you. That's a battleground. Your culture is what pressures you. It might be the culture of your work or your social group or uh, your ethnic group. Your biology is what changes you. So we begin to do something out of curiosity, but pretty soon it's a habit. And after that, it becomes a condition, even a medical condition. And your brain is what drives you and the spirit is who leads you. And I believe that we need to fight smart in every one of those battle areas. Okay, tell me a little bit okay, more. Someone's saying, I'm full of bad habits or I've got this one bad habit and I don't feel like I can break that or get out of that or get over that. So what can you tell us? Well, what I can tell you is that in my Bible, you know, I, I when I was 17, I finally ran away for good. I threw a, a, a jar of peanut butter in the car and some English muffins and I left. I had no money, nowhere to go, but I left and I left for a long time. And, and so I did not have a recipe for solving problems. There are a lot of people out there listening who have no tools, no recipe, no strength. What am I going to do? They feel like they're drowning and they are drowning. And so what I wanted to do and what I meant to do, I couldn't do. And, and there are a lot of people that understand what I'm talking about. So I carry this in my Bible, this is a seed packet. And I know I have learned that um, gifts are given, but seed is grown. And in, in John chapter one, verse 16, it says that of his fullness, we have received. And when I got to the end of this miserable journey I was on, I could not solve my own problems. I was collecting degrees. I was gonna be a prosecuting attorney, uh, but I couldn't control myself. I couldn't control my habits. I was bulimic for 20 years. And I'm here to tell you that the, the uh, seed of God, what he wants to give us, his power, his grace, does not grow in the rocky soil of the natural heart. I had to give it up. I had to say, I can't do this. I can't fix the injustice. I was a social reformer. I did child abuse investigations as a social worker, repossessed cars, skip traced on bad checks, was trying to fix this mess but I couldn't fix myself. And there are people that understand that. So when I gave control to God and said, I can't do it, then he gave me the fruit of the spirit. The Bible says in John 1 16, that he gives us his fullness, but he gives it to us in the form of seed, seed. Fantastic. Doesn't mean, Fantastic. It's, a, doesn't mean it's a cakewalk, but it means now you have a will and a desire and you have a plan. So not only claiming the promises of God, not only having his power, but he also has a plan. I can pray for deliverance from whatever it is, my, whatever my anxiety problem is, and I'm all for professional help. I'm not dismissing that at all. But if I sit down on the couch and watch soap operas and eat ding-dongs, then I'm just not going to get much traction. So he plugs us into his power, his promises, and his plan, and then we can get 
some traction in our lives. Magnificent. Vicki, I really appreciate you taking the time. God bless you. And, uh, you know, I think you'd have made a pretty good prosecuting attorney, but I'm glad you're doing what you're doing. I think that was the right choice. Thank you, John. Thanks. Vicki Griffin, Director of Lifestyle Matters, and you can find out more at lifestylematters.com. All right, let's pray together before we continue. Our Father in heaven, I'm thankful, thankful already, but grateful that tonight you're going to speak and be heard. I ask your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. In June of 1991, a 19-year-old man stood in a courtroom in Virginia Beach, Virginia, as he was sentenced to 100 years in prison for a crime he maintained he never committed. There was no doubt a crime occurred, and it was awful, a crime against a child. But no DNA evidence tied the man to the crime. He had an alibi. The young victim later said that the victim was coached to identify Darnell Phillips as the perpetrator. And although law enforcement claimed Phillips had confessed, he says he never confessed at all, and no confession was ever written down. Even though the legal system so often works very well, and even though there are so many wonderful people working in the system, it didn't work well for Mr. Phillips. When the victim of the crime became an adult, the victim maintained Mr. Phillips did not commit the crime. Darnell Phillips eventually walked out of prison on parole after spending 27 years in prison for a crime he did not commit. Michael Morton was called by police one day and told to immediately go to his home. He arrived to find a crime scene. His three-year-old son was safe, but his wife had been killed. Mr. Morton was sentenced to life in prison. Eventually, DNA testing revealed that not only had Morton not committed the crime, but another man was the actual perpetrator and was guilty of another similar crime committed nearby. Mr. Morton spent almost 25 years in prison for a crime he did not commit. There are many similar stories, unfortunately. Sometimes mistakes are made and the wrong people are imprisoned. Sometimes they're executed. And tragically, even though the system is filled with outstanding individuals, there are times when these miscarriages of justice are not the result of a mistake, but the result of something far more sinister. You can imagine that a court trial is a complicated affair. There's a motivation to find justice. There's a desire to hold the right people accountable. There's a need to make society safer. Evidence has to be collected. Interviews must be carried out. Leads must be followed up. And a trial must follow certain conventions. Things must be done right. Lawyers do their very best to see to it that their clients have the best representation possible, and they should. Now, we know something about trials. If you remember back, the O.J. Simpson trial in 1995 spanned 11 months. Even today, we remember Judge Lance Ito, Marsha Clark, Johnny Cochran. If it does not fit, you must acquit. One writer called it the Super Bowl of murder trials. About 30 miles in a straight line from where I'm standing right now is the town of Dayton, Tennessee. In 1925, Dayton played host to the Scopes Monkey Trial, as it became known. John Scopes was a young high school teacher accused of violating the Butler Act, which made it illegal in Tennessee to teach human evolution in any state-funded school. There were high-powered lawyers for the prosecution, a three-time presidential nominee named William Jennings Bryan, who was the Secretary of State under President Woodrow Wilson. For the defense, Clarence Darrow, a famous defense lawyer. Funny enough, there was a business owner in Dayton at the time named J.R. Darwin. 
He had a big sign outside his clothing store saying, Darwin is right inside. Now, last time we were together, we learned that knowing and embracing God results in a radically altered life. That's what you heard a few moments ago. Your life and God's life get on the the same frequency and your life begins to change. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. God's plan is to make a new person out of each person. You could say that what the Bible calls the fruit of the Spirit will be seen in your life. Paul wrote that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. He said against such there is no law. But as you reflect on obedience, you might realize that you're not acing that. So how important is it to live in harmony with the law, God's law? Some don't think it's so important, but when they hear the judge say, minimum four years in prison, they realize then how important it is. Now, according to the Bible, there's going to be a judgment one day. Now, does that make God bad? No, it makes God transparent. If the state or the the federal government imprisoned people or executed people or exonerated people without a trial being held, we call that tyranny or, or carelessness. Instead, we have trials. You have the right to be tried by a jury of your peers or judged by a jury of your peers. Now, sometimes the jury makes mistakes. The prosecution, the defense, the judge, because they're human and they don't always get it right. But in God's courtroom, there are no mistakes made. So how can a person face judgment, God's judgment, with confidence? And when is this judgment going to take place? As a matter of fact, I've got a court date coming up. Pretty serious. Am I nervous? Well, no, I'm not nervous. And the reason I'm not nervous is that I've got a good lawyer. And it isn't that I'm innocent. I'm guilty, very guilty, but I'm not worried. So let me tell you more. There's an arresting passage in the Bible that tells us we're all going to have to stand trial one day for crimes that we did commit. You've heard it said that the gospel is the good news, the good news story of how Jesus came to offer everlasting life to a sinful world. Later in the Bible, we find something called the everlasting gospel the final gospel message that will go to the world. It's God's last message of mercy. And even though it's clear this message is important and that it's for now and that it's for you and me, it's a message that shockingly has been mostly ignored. We're not going to ignore it. The book of Revelation is a fascinating book. It speaks of trumpets and seals and plagues and thunders and mountains and kings and Armageddon. The challenge is that many people have or the challenge that many people have is that they cannot see the forest for the trees. I'll tell you what the book of Revelation is about, and I don't mean to be overly simplistic here, but you know there's no need to overly complicate things when it comes to the Bible. The book of Revelation begins with these words, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, things which must shortly come to pass, And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant, John. 
The purpose of the book of Revelation is to reveal Jesus, the Prince of Peace, the light of the world. It shows how he's going to work in the world in the latter days of Earth's history. And of course, in that same book, you read about a titanic spiritual struggle in Earth's last days. But let's jump to the heart of the book of Revelation, where we read this. It's Revelation 14, verse 6. Then I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. An angel in the book of Revelation is a messenger. So we have a messenger and a message. And the angel is flying right up there in the midst of heaven, up where everyone can see, stressing the importance of the message that the angels are bringing. It's for everyone to hear. The angel has the everlasting gospel. The gospel is the good news. And we see the final gospel message going to the world. Jesus said in Matthew 24 that this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then will the end come. Here's a gospel message to go to every inhabitant of planet Earth. And everyone will have the opportunity to respond. Whatever it is, it must be important because God wants everyone to hear it. Everyone will before Jesus returns. It's to be preached to every nation, the Bible says. And what is the gospel? Remember that word good news. Remember that, that, that concept. This is something to, to welcome, not something to shy away from. And specifically that message is this. Fear God. Give glory to Him. For the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of waters. Fear God. No, not terror, but respect and reverence and awe. And if you had a little holy fear, I would not think that would be out of place. Love for God. A relationship with God that recognizes his transcendence, a thorough surrender to the Holy One of Heaven. The hour of His judgment has come. Look at that, judgment. Now we'll come back to that soon. And worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of waters. You remember that the conspiracy afoot in the world right now is led by a fallen being that wants the worship that only God is entitled to. So here you see a call pointing people to worshiping the Creator not the creature. You know, we all worship something. You might worship your car or your job or your money. You might worship power or possessions. Maybe you worship entertainment or entertainers or sport. God calls us to worship Him. Now, there are two more angels that speak in the everlasting gospel, but we will come back to them another time. And the messages wrap up with God saying in Revelation 14, 12, here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. We'll look at the rest of it another time. So we have an important gospel message given at the close of time that calls the world to turn towards God, embrace the message of the Bible, and recognize Jesus as creator. And you're not surprised about that. Remember last time I spoke about a great conspiracy underway that's causing people to turn away from God. In God, there is life. And when you turn your back on God, you're turning your back on life. You know, 
Some people get angry with God. They say, well, I'm done with God if that's what he's going to do. Oh, don't do that. You're turning away from life when you turn away from God. And you see, this is one reason Satan appeals to ego. In many circles, you are wise. You are educated. You are clever if you criticize the Bible, if you think the Bible is old-fashioned. But God wants the very best for the human family. We read, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. What God wants for you is to have life. The world is coming apart. So God calls to us to turn to Him, and not just in form, not just in a, in a sort of going through the motions kind of way. You know that Paul wrote that in earth's last days, there'd be masses of people who would have what he called a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. God wants better for you than that. Revelation 14, 7 says, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment is come. You see, this has something to do with preparing people for judgment and seeing them through it. God doesn't set you up to fail. He sets you up for victory. If you've ever been a failure, God wants to turn that failure into victory. Failure doesn't feel good, but you've probably heard that Abraham Lincoln lost several elections before he became the president of the United States. Michael Jordan was cut from his high school basketball team. The Beatles were rejected by record labels. Did you ever hear of a company called Trafodata? It existed for a short time and then collapsed. The company failed. Maybe it failed due to poor management. After all, it was started and run by a fellow named Bill Gates. Now, although the statement is honestly taken out of context, Oscar Wilde once wrote that every saint has a past and every sinner has a future. So let's look into the future. As we have seen, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's Romans 3. So how do we turn around from spiritual failure, especially if there's a judgment coming? And we know that God's not going to miss anything in the judgment. How do we get to the place of victory? How do we look forward in confidence in a time of real trial? Let's find out when this judgment is going to be and how you can face it with confidence. In the book of Daniel, we're actually given a picture of the judgment in process, starting in Daniel 7 and verse 9. Daniel writes, I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set, and the books were opened. That's awesome. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10 that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes 12, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be 
evil. In the book of Daniel, God actually sets a date for the judgment, not a date for the end of the world or for the return of Jesus, a date for the judgment. Let me show you this curious date. Daniel 8, 14. And he said unto me, for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. So what does that mean? The Bible talks of two sanctuaries, one in heaven and one on earth. The one on earth was portable. It went with Israel as they traveled through the wilderness. The heavenly sanctuary is God's temple in heaven. And you read about that in the Bible. Look in Revelation 11. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. And there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake and great hail. That's the temple, the sanctuary in heaven. The sanctuary in the wilderness and then the temple on earth were God's way of teaching His people about the plan of salvation. It was the center of the sacrificial system. And those Old Testament sacrifices were full of meaning. In Exodus 25, God said, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. What does that say about God? It's always been God's plan to dwell with His people. What does that tell you? Exodus 25, 9. According to all that I show you, after the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall you make it. God said, I'll give you the pattern to follow and you build me a dwelling place so I can dwell with you. Now the sanctuary they built was divided into the holy place and the most holy place. Daily offerings were ministered by the priest in the holy place, the first room. But on a special day every year, the high priest went into the most holy place and the sanctuary was cleansed. That was judgment day, the day we refer to as the day of atonement. The day of atonement was the day on which the record of the sins of the people were blotted out. Throughout the year, they'd taken the offerings down to the sanctuary and the blood of those innocent lambs was taken in and ministered there. The sins were transferred from the sinner to the lamb and then from the lamb into the sanctuary. The people were no longer under condemnation for their sins, but the record of their sins remained until the day of atonement when the record was blotted out. That was judgment day. Those who were repentant had the record of their sins blotted out. Those who were not repentant were cut off from Israel. That was the cleansing of the sanctuary. So when Daniel wrote, unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed, every Jew knew he meant that there would be a judgment day. So let me ask you this question. Have you got any idea in the world what Jesus is doing right now? The Bible tells us, this is Hebrews 9, 24, for Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Jesus appears in heaven for us. And what's He doing for you there? He's appearing for you as your high priest. Hebrews 4.14 Seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, 
let us hold fast our profession. Verse 16, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The emphasis is on mercy and grace. Jesus is our high priest, our advocate, as John said. That's a picture of a good and a great God. There won't be a miscarriage of justice in heaven's judgment. We know Jesus is our high priest. He's in the heavenly sanctuary as our advocate. And just as there was a cleansing of the earthly sanctuary, there'll be a cleansing of the sin record in heaven. That's judgment day. It's really like an audit. It's a review where Jesus looks at heaven's records to see who has truly repented and who has not. You see, before anyone is saved ultimately or lost, Jesus will show that the saved are saved and the lost are lost based on their decisions. They've either surrendered to God or they haven't. The judgment isn't God looking at your life through a magnifying glass hunting for dirt. It's simply God honoring the decisions you have made for Him or against Him. So when's this going to take place? At the end of the 2,300 days. Now, Daniel was receiving this information in about 550 BC. 2,300 days is about six years and some change. So this would mean then that the judgment would take place in 544 BC or so, two and a half thousand years ago. Well, we know that's not the case. So look at this with me. Daniel was told that the vision refers to the time of the end and that it refers to many days in the future. So how can that be? Well, in the Bible, multiple times, God uses a day to represent a year. So 2,300 days would be 2,300 years. Now that makes sense in terms of the cosmic timeline. So God sends an angel to explain it all to Daniel. And the angel says, 70 weeks are determined for you and your people, uh, determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. That's a lot. Now, all of that wasn't going to happen in, what, 70 weeks, a year and four months. So let's remember the symbol. A day represents a year. No, that doesn't mean six creation days, six years. It means in prophecy, a day represents a year. When God said 70 weeks, that would be 70 weeks of seven days, which would be 490 days, which is 490 years. Daniel 9, 25, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublous times. And there's your starting point. The going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. If we could find that, if we could find out when it was decreed Jerusalem would be restored and rebuilt, we would be onto something. Well, I've got good news for you. The decree is found in the Bible. It's not hidden. It's just ignored. You know that some people refer to some parts of the United States, rather ungraciously, I think, as flyover country. The idea being you just want to get from here to there without dealing with everything in between. A lot of people have flyover country in their Bible. They'll read Genesis, ooh, creation. Then they'll read about Abraham and the wonderful story of Joseph. And then they just fly over the rest, get maybe down to Psalms and then leap down to the New Testament as though what is in between isn't important. 
Well, somewhere between Genesis and Matthew is the book of Ezra, a few books before Psalms. And in Ezra 7, you find that decree. Artaxerxes, the Medo-Persian king, issued it in 457 BC. So you start with that decree and add those 483 years, you get to AD 27. That's when Messiah would come. In AD 27, Jesus was baptized. Luke said, 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. That's when Jesus was anointed, revealed as the Messiah, AD 27, which is why Galatians 4.4 says, Christ came in the fullness of time. Right after he was baptized, Jesus said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. This is amazing. When he said the time is fulfilled, he was referring to that time prophecy. He couldn't stand up and say, I'm the Messiah, but he could prod their thinking. They knew what the scripture said. They knew when Messiah should be appearing. When Jesus said the time is fulfilled, he was pointing back to Daniel, announcing himself as the fulfillment of that prophecy. Daniel 9, 26, after the 62 weeks, Messiah will be cut off. Jesus was cut off when he died on the cross. Verse 27, he would confirm the covenant with many for a week, a time period of seven years. Those seven years began in AD 27. In the middle of the week, the sacrificial system ended when Jesus died on the cross and the veil in the temple was torn in two. No more sacrifices because the true lamb had died. Romans 5, 6 says, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Look at this, decree in 457 BC. Jesus baptized 69 weeks later. In the middle of the 70th week, he died on the cross. And at the end of the 70 weeks, 34 AD, notice what Paul and Barnabas said in the book of Acts. It was necessary. The word of God would first be spoken to you, but since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, we turn to the Gentiles. You see, after Stephen was stoned, the privileges of the gospel were to extend to the entire world. So what we see in this prophecy is it's crystal clear Jesus is the Messiah. Unless, of course, you believe the Bible writers just got lucky and made predictions that just happened to come true. Our Savior on earth and our mediator in the heavenly sanctuary. Now, let's add the rest of the years of the 2,300-year prophecy. You see what happens. Start in 457. Stretch out 2,300 years. Remember to account that there's no year zero and you arrive Judgment Day, 1844. So you may ask, what happened in 1844? Well, nothing at all. Nothing on earth, but in heaven, Jesus began his work of judgment. The work of determining who honestly accepted him as Lord and who didn't. It means we're living in the judgment hour. Well, why has it taken so long? Well, I don't think there's any hurry. And both you and I are very glad the judgment didn't finish 100 years ago. If it had, we wouldn't have heard the good news. But now our question is this, how do we make it successfully through the judgment? This is inspection time. God is gonna be looking at our hearts and we are all sinners. Well, this is the good news of the gospel. What does it take to get into heaven? Someone's gonna say, you have to be good enough. But no, listen carefully. Good people don't go to heaven. We can't be good. Remember what Isaiah said? Our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. The fact of the matter is God doesn't ask you to be good ever. 
In three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the story is recorded of a man who came to Jesus with a question. The man is known as the rich young ruler. And when he calls Jesus good master, Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. So if you're trying to be good, the fact is you're trying to be God. Now that doesn't mean God wants you to be bad, don't think that, but he doesn't want you to be good. He wants you to be holy. He wants you to be righteous. So where in the world do we get righteousness from? Paul wrote that he wanted to be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. That's why the Bible says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. What a lot of people don't realize is that what we need in order to enter into everlasting life isn't to be a good guy. It's not to be a nice person. It's to have righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. So how do you get it? By asking for it and then by believing you receive it. Oh, I'm not talking about casual drive-through righteousness. This is the real thing. I can imagine it working like this. An auctioneer is auctioning off the righteousness of Christ. It's going to go to the highest bidder. Bidding starts low, as often happens. But someone offers $50, then someone $100. But they realize we're talking about everlasting life. So the bidding jumps way up from $1,000 to $2,000 to $10,000 to $100,000. Someone offers a million. Then along comes Warren Buffett. He says, I'll give you a billion but Bill Gates offers more and Jeff Bezos offers even more and the auctioneer says, it's still not enough. And I imagine it's right then that someone in the group raises their hand and says, I don't have enough money, but I'll give my heart. I'll give my life. And that's what it takes, a heart. Not a good heart, just a heart. And when God gives you the righteousness of Christ, He'll change your life and you'll grow and you'll become more and more like Jesus and you'll appreciate more and more the things of heaven. It's time to stop thinking that you've got to be good enough for God. It's time to stop trying to be a good person. Some people think that if they had enough willpower, they'd be a better Christian. But willpower might actually be the worst enemy of Christianity. It's a Victorian concept in many ways. The idea that willpower is a force and you might have a lot or you might have a little. Now, there's no question that one person might be able to resist chocolate cookies. Someone else might be able to stop at one and someone eats the whole pack. Someone doesn't care for potato chips. Someone else vacuums them up. Someone might not be bothered by rejection while someone might get all bent out of shape. But that's misunderstanding willpower. Dr. Carl Eric Fisher of Columbia University says, the best way forward may be to let go of willpower altogether. You're going to resist alcohol, but maybe not something else. Resist violence, but maybe not dishonesty. Resist anger, but tomorrow you don't. What does a weak human being do? You don't resort to willpower. Instead, you give your will to God. You let God have it. You remember that God says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness, 2 Corinthians 12. And second, you remember that there is power in the Word of God. When Jesus was tempted, he quoted the Bible. He said, it is written, which I very much appreciate. It is written. You can try and try and try. and You'll have some success and a lot of failure. 
or you can surrender and surrender and surrender. You'll have failure there too as you grow. Jesus said in John 15, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. John 15, 4, Jesus died for the sins of all the world, including yours. Today, he offers to live his life in you, to take your sin and give you his righteousness. Remember that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now offer him your heart, offer him your sins. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's in 1 John 1 and verse 9. And then believe, invite him into your life and grow. You grow. No one was born running. You grow. Get God's word into your mind. Read the Bible. Pray. Say something to God. Connect with God. It'll change you. I remember being a kid and staying at my friend's dairy farm. He convinced me to grab hold of an electric fence. Well, he did, and it didn't harm him because he grabbed hold of a wire that wasn't connected. He knew what he was doing. So I grabbed the fence, boom, felt like I'd been kicked by a moose. I would encourage you not to grab hold of an electric fence, but I would encourage you to grab hold of Jesus. His power will run through your life. You'll receive his righteousness. You'll grow and you'll keep on growing. In the judgment, God's gonna say, not guilty because Jesus died in your place and he took your sins. And when God looks at you, he sees someone who's pure, who's righteous because you are connected to him. This is the court case of all court cases. No miscarriage of justice. No one found guilty who was innocent or declared innocent who was really guilty. We'll be saved through Jesus. Hebrews 7.25, therefore, he is able also to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is standing for us in heaven right now. He's interceding for us. I want to encourage you to make a decision for Jesus now, to give him your will, to believe he'll take it, and do something fantastic. But I want you to actually make a decision. Now, if you have a mobile phone with you, I want you to do something. I want you to send me a text message. The number to call is this one, 423-264-2575. Let me give you a moment to make sure you have your phone. If you've got two people, three people, four people, everybody grab your phone and send me a text message. You're gonna dial this number, but the message I want you to send me is the message FAITH, F-A-I-T-H, FAITH. You send me that text message and a message is gonna come back to you, giving you the opportunity to make a decision for Jesus. We're gonna make a decision tonight by text, 423-264-2575. Text the word faith to me. That's the message you'll send me at that number. And I'll text you right back with a message to give you a chance to make a decision for Jesus. That first question you're gonna get is this. Would you like to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and personal Savior? And I hope you'll text yes back to that message. You just go right ahead. There's a series of about four or five questions that are gonna come back to you after you answer that first one and then the second one 
and then the third one. Would you like to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? You text the word faith to me, that question will come back to you. You can write yes, you could write no, or maybe, or supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. But my hope is that you'll say yes. And when you type a response, you're gonna get a second question. Do you repent of your sins and believe that God forgives you and gives you salvation as a free gift? Now, if you're just joining in on this, text the word faith to 423-264-2575 and you'll receive a series of questions. As you answer one, give it a couple of moments and another question will come back to you. Here's question three. Do you choose to surrender your life to Jesus and do you desire to live your life according to His Word? No, no, not willpower. Your will given to His power. And that's when He does something wonderful and powerful in your life. Do you choose to surrender your life to Jesus and desire to live your life according to His Word? And you answer that question. My prayer is that you'll answer with a yes. And now you'll receive this question, question four. Would you like to rededicate your life to Jesus today? If this is the first time, take that as being dedicate. Text me back a yes. I'll send you another question. First one, would you like to accept Jesus as Lord and Savior? You must have got that by now. Second one, do you repent of your sins and believe God forgives you? Third, will you surrender your life to Jesus? Fourth, would you like to rededicate your life to Jesus right now? Fifth question, how may we pray for you? How may we pray for you? You will receive these questions. Just answer with a yes. How may we pray for you? Tell us how. What's your prayer request? We'll pray for you because God is at work in your life. And I want to pray for you right now. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, tonight we've learned judgment is going on and we are grateful. And so we ask you to take our hearts right now, make them your fortress. We choose Jesus. Friend, do you choose Jesus? Will you reach out to Him by faith? Let Him take your heart. We thank you tonight for the assurance we have in Jesus. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. And amen. Remember to visit hopeawakens.org. Prayer requests and questions and watch previous presentations. You can do it all right there. I want to say thank you and let you know I am praying for you tomorrow night Earth's ultimate remedy. Join us then for more of Hope Awakens.